If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 563. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. Purchase a course there. It keeps this podcast free of charge. You can also click on that support tab at brianmclanahan.com. You can purchase one of my books wherever books are sold online. You can get any of those. So get those too. You can also click on the shop tab at brianmclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. As always... Rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Share it around on social media. Send me those show requests. Do all you can to help promote the show. Get people thinking locally and acting locally because that is the key. If you're going to have Hamilton and Marshall and Lincoln as your basis of conservatism, you are the problem. You are contributing to a losing conservatism in America why? Because this is the exact same thing the left has done. This is out of all the things I've done on this show. I hope that you've gotten that message. If you're new to the show, if you love Lincoln, hopefully by the end of listening to several hundred of these episodes, you won't anymore. And you'll see that that's really the core of the problem because the left can use Lincoln too. When both the left and the right think John C. Calhoun is the worst man in America, you know that there's some problems there. Right, because they're both going to use it. The left doesn't like it because Calhoun is too much of a states' rights guy. The right doesn't like Calhoun well because he's too much of a states' rights guy. So what's the real message there? Hey, states' rights might be pretty good. If, if you've got uh, people like uh, you know George Will hating on Calhoun and Michael Anton and Sonia Sotomayor. By the way, I just saw a tweet. From, uh, from Kevin Goodsman, where Sonia Sotomayor, in oral arguments, said she didn't understand why if the states can, can uh, mandate vaccines, the central government can't as well. This is a Supreme Court justice who doesn't understand federalism. You see, because she's a nationalist. And I would say that this is, I just did a podcast yesterday on this common good originalism, which is uh, you know, a type of uh, nationalism. Lincolnism, well, this is what they would say too. Well, if the, why can't the center do it? Because that's not what the American Federal Republic is all about. Okay, so this is the real issue. So hopefully after listening to this show, you're going to be uh, aware that this stuff is just... I mean, this we have to win this argument. And this is where... Ant, well, Anton says, well, uh, why can't we get control of the center and then we can debate these things? No, no. We have to have the core right before we can do anything. So the real issue here is just working from the bottom up. Forget the center. Forget all these fools at Claremont and Hillsdale and all... Uh, you know, Edmund Burke found all that stuff. Forget these fools because they're just delusional. They're lost. 
They're lost. The real rubber hits the road at your school board. We've seen this, by the way. We've seen how important that is. Your school board, right? Your school board, your county government, your city government, your state government. Now, I know there's a there's someone who listens to the show who points out that you know they, they live in a very leftist state and he worked in state government and other things and all the layers of federal regulation and everything else, how disastrous this is. I agree. So we do need to try to peel back that stuff somehow. And having like-minded judges and lawyers who say, look, all of these federal laws are unconstitutional. They're all unconstitutional. Whether it's for common good originalism, which, you know, right wing or left wing, you know what? They're all unconstitutional. That would be a win. If they all sat down and said, hey, your law on the left is unconstitutional. You know what? That law on the right is also unconstitutional because you don't need it. It's redundant. It's stupid. Get rid of it. That would be a win. So anyways, I want to talk about today about the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment is so crucial to our understanding of where we are as a government in the United States. And, and Look, you can't have all the stupidity on the left and the right, all the nationalist stupidity, without the 14th Amendment. And where was that born? Well, of course, in Lincoln's Republican Party. The same Republican Party that yesterday I talked about, Josh Hammer, would run around saying, that's real conservatism in America. That's real conservatism. If we just have more Abraham Lincoln, more muscular Abraham Lincoln, if we just punish these people, just send in the army to them, well, what are they going to do when they have power, dummy? They're going to send in the army on you too. They're going to sick it on you. What are we going to do when we centralize, when we make corporate... look? Lincoln, Lincoln is the architect of, and Hamilton, this is the thing that makes me laugh about Josh Hamer too, Lincoln and Hamilton are the architect of what we're seeing in modern society with corporate America. They're the architects of that. We need more of that? We need more of that somehow. Well, these, these people are, they can't see the forest through the trees. They don't understand. All right. This is why, I'm, you know, when I say things like I say them, People don't invite me on panels and other things because uh, I'm a little too blunt. I'm not diplomatic enough in what I do here. Why? Why should I be? You listen to this. Get more people to listen to it. Then I'll have to be on their stupid panels. So I want to talk about the 14th Amendment. There's a really good piece at Law and Liberty by Jesse Merriam, who's a very good legal scholar. Teaches at, uh, I think, uh, Patrick Henry College, I think is where he teaches now. But very good legal scholar. Uh, a friend, I consider him a friend and a colleague, um, and he wrote a little review of a book on the 14th Amendment, uh, Randy Barnett and Evan Burnick's The Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment. And I want to talk about the first part of this essay. It's a long essay. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But he says, the title of this is Another Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment. This is important. You see, Charles Beard, back in the early 20th century, wrote a book entitled An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution. Not the economic interpretation of the Constitution. An economic interpretation of the Constitution. It's a book that Forrest MacDonald took apart. But later on, what's interesting about that is Forrest MacDonald came back and begrudgingly said, you know what? Mm, there's some things that, uh, that Beard got right. He didn't. Say it was the interpretation. There's something else to this. 
But this hard interpretation of the Constitution, there was certainly personal motivation and self-interest in ratifying the Constitution, is not necessarily missing the point behind it. Having the soft interpretation which McDonald was promoting and then others ran with was not necessarily right all the time either. There were some real uh, you know, substantive reasons why, substantial reasons why, some individuals supported it, and it was their pocketbook. It was their wallet and what they could get out of it. There were people that did that. And that's not saying it's not true, but it's not the only interpretation of the Constitution. So what Merriam has done here, and I love it, he essentially concludes by saying this is an interpretation of the 14th Amendment, but it leaves the, the, the door open for other interpretations of the 14th Amendment. People like Raoul Berger, who said the 14th Amendment, this idea that we have incorporation, is ridiculous. It's stupid. It didn't, it's not true at all. Because you see, once you get to the incorporation side, which even uh, Randy Barnett would agree with in many ways, you open the door to Eric Foner. You can't open the door to these people. Just shut it on their face and say, get out. Slam it in their face. You are not right. That's the only way you stop all the nonsense. You have to get out of this nationalist mindset. If you have it for a second, we're doomed. Because the left will win over and over and over again. And why? Because of emotivism. Because their position is emotionally appealing. It feels better. It's not mean. Why was Trump not liked? Because he was mean. Mean. He said mean things to people. Joe Biden doesn't say anything mean. But you know what? Trump governed like a nationalist. Joe Biden governs like a nationalist. The Democrats govern like nationalists. The Republicans do. But Trump was mean. And he hurt people's feelings. You see, because America is, a, is a, an emotivist society. In some places it's not. In some states it's not. They, they get over their emotions. And they are, well, I mean, live and let live. Sweep around your own back door. Do these kind of things. That's not emotivist. That's realist. Hey, I can control these things. Can't control that thing. I can't control what idiots do in California. And you know what? I'm good with that. You know why? Because I don't care what idiots do in California because I don't live there. If you want to be an idiot and live in California and do idiotic things, have at it. Have at it. You know, if you want to be an idiot in Massachusetts and do idiotic things, go for it. And what they need to say is, hey, you right-wingers in Florida or South Carolina, you want to do idiotic things, go for it. But no, that's not the Puritan zeal of America. If somebody somewhere is doing something you don't like on the left and the right, you got to take care of that. Why? It's, it's psychopathic in some ways. These are psychopaths. So I want to talk about this first part of it because he talks about the five phases of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment... If you read my Alexander Hamilton's Screwed Up America, is key to that book because I get into Hugo Black and what was done with the 14th Amendment to really mess things up. Now, Black was a progressive, but Black was doing some things that he thought in some ways would actually promote conservatism or at least a more uh, conservative society in some ways. But 
by doing what he did, by advocating incorporation, which means that the Bill of Rights apply to the states, you've really changed the meaning of the 14th Amendment and the meaning of America. And this is what Eric Foner says. Hey, look, the 14th Amendment, good. 14th Amendment is grand because it allows the left to win all the time. So Merriam says, the first generation of 14th Amendment jurisprudence may be described as the status quo phase, because during this period, the Supreme Court interpreted the 14th Amendment's language against the background of the original 1787 Constitution, thereby leaving the original Constitution's guarantees of vertically and horizontally distributed powers largely intact. This is true. Over the next generation, the 14th Amendment became a bit more active as the Supreme Court began using it to restrain state regulation in the sphere of property and contract rights. But this economic rights phase represented a relatively mild departure from the status quo phase because the Supreme Court's protection of economic liberties was generally co uh, consonant with the founding view of property rights. So the first two phases, essentially right after the amendment is ratified and then into the early 20th century, uh, you're, you're getting a, that part, period of time where the 14th Amendment is generally mild in its application. I would say wrong at times, but still mild in its application. And they didn't incorporate anything. They didn't think that the 14th Amendment changed any structure of the Constitution. In fact, what's really interesting is when you go out and look at the debates leading up to the congressional adoption of the 14th Amendment, passing it through and then sending it to the states for ratification... This is where Berger is fantastic. He says, look, nobody was on board with this incorporation nonsense. This was brought up. One congressman stood up and said, well, the Bill of Rights is already applies to states because of the Supremacy Clause. Don't you know the Supremacy Clause puts the, makes the Bill of Rights supreme against the states? And opponent stands up and says, hey, dummy, don't you know? That's already been, that's already been litigated. Look at Barron v. Baltimore, the one case that John Marshall got right. The one time I will say John Marshall was correct was in that case. Look at Barron v. Baltimore. He says the Bill of Rights don't apply to the states. Move on. Move on. Uh, uh, uh. But this idea that they would, it would force incorporation was rejected. Was rejected in the debates Leading to ratification or leading to the adoption of the amendment in Congress, passage of the amendment in Congress. Then Merriam says it correctly. The 14th Amendment took a wild turn in the middle of the 20th century as the Supreme Court incorporated the Bill of Rights, expanded the meaning of equal protection, and explored the penumbra of enumerated social liberties, thereby transforming the 14th Amendment into a vehicle for judicially managed social revolution. And this civil rights phrase, the 14th Amendment, became a second founding, swallowing the 1787 Constitution. As a result, American constitutional law essentially became 14th Amendment law, and American politics essentially became 14th Amendment politics, so that just about every issue that sharply divides Americans became subject to federal judicial oversight. This is exactly right. That's a beautiful paragraph. A nice summary of what's happened and why Josh Hammer is, is a fool, why Michael Anton is a fool. Because, you see, before this, we wouldn't have had all this stupidity that we have to fight back. It's the, it's the central authority. It's Lincoln, by the way. It's the Republican Party, by the way, that caused all this stupidity. This gave rise to the 14th Amendment's fourth phase, what may be described as the ideology phrase, a period in which our political parties shaped platforms, formed coalitions, and sorted out voters 
along the lines created by the court's 14th Amendment jurisprudence. In this period, the Democrats became the party of judicial activism as liberal scholars such as, uh, well, I'm not going to list those people, and liberal justices defended the Supreme Court's vigorous role under the 14th Amendment in overseeing state regulation on such diverse matters as abortion, religion, race, and sexuality. So, right. But what is the key? What is the problem here? That third phase, which led to the fourth phase, and now which is leading to the fifth phase. The Republicans, by contrast, became the party of judicial restraint. Accordingly, conservative scholars and conservative justices sought to uphold many of the status quo phase decisions. As Chief Justice Rehnquist explained in U.S. v. Morrison, these decisions were critical to preventing the 14th Amendment from obliterating the framers' carefully crafted balance of power between the states and the national government. This is why Rehnquist is the, one of the best chief justices, if not the best chief justice of all time. The ideology phase came to an end in the 21st century, and this is due in large part to the triumph of legal liberalism, which by this point had controlled the academy, bar, and courts for two generations. As legal liberalism became embedded in our constitutional culture, Republicans and Democrats coalesced around using the federal judiciary as the primary vehicle of governmental power and using the 14th Amendment as the primary weapon in the judicial arsenal. Again, what I just talked about yesterday. With the triumph of legal liberalism, conservative criticism of incorporation, judicial activism, and unenumerated rights waned. This convergence also produced a divergence, however, as conservatives began embracing a robust 14th Amendment that could be harnessed against state regulation that they opposed, such as state restrictions on business, guns, and religion. This divergence initiated our current era, which may be described as the uh, juristocracy phrase, juristocracy, I'm sorry, juristocracy phrase, excuse me, juristocracy, if I can speak today, phase. In this fifth phase, neither side is interested in leaving their preferred issues to the political process outlined in the 1787 Constitution. In our juristocracy phrase, the left-right axis in constitutional law no longer operates according to judicial activism, judicial restraint, or a broad, narrow 14th Amendment. Rather than our current phrase, legal debate is now structured as a war over how to wield the federal judiciary's mighty 14th Amendment sword. This exacerbated our cultural polarization by making it part of the judicial process. Into this fray comes Barnett and Burnick's Letter and Spirit, a book tailored to the juristocracy phase. So he gets into how these, where this stuff is purging. He does a nice job explaining all this. But what I want to focus on and why I said at the beginning, I'm not going to read the whole essay. You can read it all at Law and Liberty. It's a very good essay. But... Jesse Merriam is exactly right on why the 14th Amendment is so dangerous. It's dangerous because in the fourth, the third through the fifth phases are disastrous for the original Constitution. Somebody put up a video the other day of a you know man on the street thing. They went to a mall, and in this mall, uh, they asked a, a girl, uh, when was the United States founded? And she said, ah, 1964. Everybody laughs. Ho, oh, oh, these people are so stupid. She wasn't wrong. She wasn't. I don't think she knew what she was saying was right. She probably was really thinking that's when the founding fathers were living, you know, 1964, because that's a long time ago, right? She wasn't wrong because that's really when the United States was founded. In fact, you could say that's when the courts became, I mean, just went way off the rails. But even you, you, could, you could say, well, maybe that's not exactly right. Maybe 1862 is when the United States was really founded the way we currently sit. And that's when Reconstruction began in America. That's when Lincoln decided 
to reconstruct the United States. And of course, Congress, with their military reconstruction after Lincoln's death, though I'm not so certain Lincoln could have stopped that. I mean, this is something that people don't want to admit. That, well, Lincoln, the great, politi- that great politician, the great statesman, he could have stopped all those things. No, he couldn't. He, didn't, he had political capital, but he couldn't do it. In fact, I think it's pretty clear Lincoln was trying to break free from the radicals and create some type of coalition of people like Alexander Stevens and himself and some Southern Whigs and some Northern Whigs, and they were going to create kind of a different type of, of group. Maybe you could have stopped it that way. If he had actually lined up with the South, we'll never know because he was shot and killed before that. In fact, Lincoln's assassination was disastrous in many ways for American conservatism because it allowed the radicals just to completely take over. There was no, there was no break on it then. Johnson was un, incapable of doing it. Now, I'm not so certain Lincoln could have done it any better than Johnson most of the time. But regardless, this is why uh, the 14th Amendment is so important. It's why Eric Foner just wrote an entire book on this, on the Civil War Amendments. Because that's when America was refounded. Refounding. The 1787 Constitution has been dead for a very long time. In fact, I would argue it's been dead since 1789. But beyond that, it's been dead for a very long time because of the Civil War Amendments. Most importantly, the 14th Amendment. Not because of the way it was originally thought it would be used, but because of the way it has been used since. So I think Jesse Merriman in this particular part of the essay, and then he gets into some other things, you know, how this, the second part is the purge or rejection of phases one and four, um, and how these work. And, and, and Barnett is an originalist, but what Merriman points out in this book is he's, well, wait a second here, but he's not really the phase one originalist. He's kind of another phase originalist. He's kind of a phase maybe two or three originalist. Well, what? which 14th Amendment are we talking about? The only way to be a 14th Amendment originalist is to be a phase one originalist. That's it. The idea was to make sure that uh, blacks could own property in the United States, former slaves at that point, could own property in the United States and have access to the courts. This was the point. That was it. It wasn't any of these other things that have been created, carved out of the 14th Amendment. And you see, this is important because Merriam points out later in this piece, uh, and I've talked about it on the show before, we have textualism and originalism. In fact, what Barnett's doing is becoming a textualist. This is what Josh Hammer is. This is what Michael Anton essentially is. This is what Ted Cruz is. This is what these people are. They're textualists, not really originalists. Robert Bork was an originalist. Antonin Scalia was a textualist. If you're going to run around championing Antonin Scalia, you're going to distort what originalism means and you're going to undermine it. Robert Bork, the rejection of Robert Bork, as Marion points out in this piece, was a disaster. You see, Robert Bork, if Robert Bork had been put on the Supreme Court, things would have been vastly different, I think. So Robert Bork's rejection was, I mean, just, it was a death blow to real originalism because Robert Bork did believe in real originalism. He believed in going back and looking at not just the text and what the public meaning of it was at the time or or how you can interpret the text, but it was 
Well, no. What did they say it meant when they ratified it? What did they say it meant when they ratified the Constitution? How limited that central power was going to be? That's what they said it meant. You go back to Tench Cox's uh, Freeman essays, and he's very clear about the limits of federal power and the expansive powers of the states. This is where I would agree with Josh Hammer. They believed in expansive powers of the state, just not the central state, but the states themselves. And this is people don't like to hear that because then when the state of California, I talked about this last week, if the state of California passes some type of stupid restrictions on firearms, I mean, they have every right to do it. You may not, it might be bad legislation. It is. So get out of California or work to break decentralized California. These are the things we need to be talking about now in the 21st century, not some type of new nationalism. No, we're going to lose that game. Why? We just saw it in 2020. The left will pull out all the stops to win, and they will control the, the apparatus of power, and they will use their oligarch, oligarchic buddies in the corporate media and big tech to control everything. So how do you break that? You decentralize. That's how you do it. But the 14th Amendment becomes this really important part of the discussion on this. And this is why I wanted to cover it today. I do a lot more with the 14th Amendment in my American Constitutions class. If you want a real originalism, take my originalist papers classes at McClanahan Academy. There's four parts of that. They're really good. And there's 101 essays. It's not just, let's look at John Jay and Federalist number two, because John Jay and Federalist number two, or let's look at Alex, uh, let's look at uh, James Madison, I'm sorry, and Federalist 51, because Federalist 51, let's look at Madison and Federalist 10. No, I cover a lot of that stuff. But I also cover a lot of other things, too, that show you, hey, wait a second here. These are speeches. These are public documents by people all over the United States at the time. Every state, pretty much. I mean, I tried to get as variety of, of voices as I could uh, that say, look, the real issue here is federal power. We don't want an overpowering federal government. We want to keep the states as the vehicles of, of local concern. So let's do that. That's the key. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you tomorrow for the next one. By the way, this is the first. We're back four episodes a week now. Hopefully keep that going. I want to mention, too, that if you want to get me five days a week, you can also get that Abbeville Institute podcast, abbevilleinstitute.org. Uh, you can go out there. They're on Spotify as well and Apple uh, Podcasts, so you can get uh, the Abbeville Institute podcast there. And that's the fifth podcast of the week. I'm back doing that too. So five podcasts a week for Brian McClanahan Show, one at Abbeville Institute. If you want me five days a week uh, and want my podcast five days a week, that's the way you do it. I'll see you tomorrow for the next one. See you then.